1:4. After the two days he departed from Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen that seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. At the Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever had left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of God. Thank you, Amanda. You do a great job of reading. I really appreciate you that when you do that for us. I don't know if you've been uh, watching television much lately, but there's been a commercial on TV. It's actually a trailer for a brand new movie that's coming out. I didn't check the date, but it's coming out very soon. It's called The Life of Pi. And you've seen the movie trailer for The Life of Pi, a few of you? Uh, just, just, have, you re- have you read the book, The Life of Pi? Yeah. The Life of Pi is a new movie that's coming out, and it looks like a very uh, uh, fascinating it looks like a very fascinating movie, um, uh, well shot and just brilliant to watch. Um, but it reminded me of the actual book called The Life of Pi. I came across that book several years ago, probably six, six, six or five or six years. Is there uh, five or six years ago? Um, and it's written by Jan Martel. Um, it was written in 2001. I came across because it was on my son's reading list for one of the classes he took when he was in junior high. And like every parent, I'm sure you do this, read what your kids are reading in school, all right? You all do this, won't you? Always read what they assign. And so, and I love to read anyway. Any excuse to read is a good one for me. And so I picked up this book, The Life of Pi, which of course, as I'm saying to you, is going to be a movie here uh, in, uh, soon out uh, probably at Christmas time or Thanksgiving time. It caught my attention early on when I read this, started to read this story, because it starts at the beginning after a few things happen. A man is having a conversation with another man, and he says, uh, I, uh, uh, an author is looking for something about which to write a book. He, he's an author. He's got brain block. He can't, you know, writer's block. He can't figure out. So he's having a conversation with an older gentleman, and the gentleman says to him this. He says, I have a story that will make you believe in God. Well, that kind of captured my imagination. And so I thought, well, what is this story going to be about that will cause us to believe in God? Well, it's a fantastic, I say, when I say fantastic, I mean it in a fantastical story about a guy who's on a boat with a tiger, you know, ultimately. Um, And it's just an interesting story. But I discovered early on that the guy's name is Pi. It's a shortened version that he he chose uh, for various reasons. And Pi grew up in India, but he, but soon, soon, soon he began a spiritual journey, 
And uh, so he met a Catholic priest. And though he was Hindu by having been raised in India, he's now a teenager when this story occurs, um, he, uh, he meets Father Martin. And talking to the, this Catholic priest, he says, I like the Catholic faith. I want to convert and become a Catholic. So he, he decides he's going to become both a Hindu and a Catholic, right? So he's a Hindu Catholic. Then later on, he meets a Mr. Kumar, who is a Muslim of some standing. And he talks to him and gets to know him. And so he decides, I'm going to convert to Islam. Um, and so he openly practices all three religions. He says, I am a, a Hindu, Islam, uh, Hindu, Muslim, Catholic, and he, he, he practices these, these, these religions, and his, uh, uh, his parents are, are, are a little concerned about this because uh, uh, they, say he, uh, they say that he has to choose a single religion. He says, no, I, I can't. And so throughout this book, among all the other things, there's a sort of thing, isn't just any belief okay, and can't you just pick and choose from all different beliefs? Now, there's a lot of other reasons to read this story because it's quite an interesting story, well-written and well-crafted. I actually enjoyed the, the book very much. But the life of Pi, and of course this was required reading for my seventh grade son, obviously, uh, which tells you something about the nature of our educational system today. But the basic thrust of how people are looking at life today is that any belief is good, and in fact you can pick and choose from a variety of beliefs, and so you can believe in God in any way you want to. The question is, is that true? Is it true? that belief is in the eye of the beholder, to t paraphrase the beauty word. Is it true that belief is in the eye of the beholder? Your belief is fine, my belief is fine, we can choose as many beliefs as we want. Well, if you ask our culture, they would say yes. But if you look at the Scripture, what will you find out? The story which Amanda just read for us is a story about belief. And it talks, it talks to us about the nature of belief and how important belief is. And so if you want to take notes this morning, I want to talk to you today about the object of belief, the evidence of belief, and the validation of belief that's found in this story. Amanda did a great job of reading it for you. Um, uh, and so I won't read the whole thing again for you, but I'd like you to think a little bit about it. It says, after the two days, he departed for... Galilee. Now, where was, the, where was he for the two days? If you were with us last week, he was in Samaria. He had just had a conversation with a woman by a well. This was the place in between Judea and Galilee. Judea was where Jerusalem, it was south. That was where the, that was where the temple was. That's where much of the action John takes place. John was going from Jerusalem up towards his home in Galilee, northwards, and he goes through Samaria, and he meets a woman by a well, and he has a conversation with her about spiritual longing and spiritual thirst. And if you want to hear that talk, Check, on, check it out on iTunes. You can listen to that or look on our website. Now it says he, at there, the woman believes in him and many other Samaritan, which are like an non, uh, a minority ethnic group there, believe in him as well. He makes his way up to Judea, uh, excuse me, up to Galilee. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now that's a parenthetical statement by John, the gospel writer. Prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he comes to Galilee, the Galileans welcome him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This raises an immediate question in our mind. John the Gospel writer just said that Jesus says a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now he goes into his home area and it says they welcomed him. So what John is trying to help us to see is that not everybody who thinks they welcome Jesus really 
welcome Jesus. Not everybody who thinks they have a relationship with Jesus really has a relationship with Jesus. Something about the way they more or less believed in Jesus wasn't adequate from the gospel perspective, okay? So, they had gone to the feast. They had seen what he had done when he was down in Jerusalem. They'd probably heard about the temple cleaning. They might have heard about his conversation with the um, uh, with Nicodemus. And then it says, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water into wine. Well, now if you've been tracking with us, you remember this story from John chapter 2 where Jesus shows up at a wedding. They run out of wine. We studied that a few weeks ago. And we learned when we looked at that that Jesus, by doing that miracle, turning water into wine, showed that he was the true Lord of the feast. He was the true bridegroom of the bride bridegroom of the wedding, and he was the true purification of the wine. Those three concepts, that sign he did to show that he was the true master of the feast. He was the true bridegroom of the wedding, and he was the true purification of the wine. That was what he did in Cana, and now he's come back there after a period of time. And so he's in Cana. Going on, it says, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. A nobleman, some versions say. He probably was, he worked uh, Herod Antipas had his, his castle, his place of living there in Capernaum, okay? And uh, I think he was the son of Herod. I can't remember for sure, but I believe he was. Um, and, and, he, and, and he worked probably in his, in his castle or in his area, somehow worked for the government, okay? He probably was a Jew. We're not certain, but he probably was a Jew, okay? All right? When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Capernaum is down by the Sea of Galilee, which is below sea level, and, and Cana was up uh, many miles away, a, day's, a full day's worth of journey away. He had come all the way because his son was ill. What would you do if your son was ill and you were afraid he's going to die, and you heard maybe that there was a miracle worker that might be able to help you? That's what this guy had done. All right? So, uh, he was at the point of death. Verse 48. So, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. There's our word believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now, this is an interesting thing. The man just walked 10, 20 miles to see Jesus for, on behalf of his child. He says, please come and heal my son. Jesus answers him not by saying, okay, I will go, nor does he say, no, I won't do it. He says, no, you can go. Your son is well. I mean, imagine that. He's just walked all this way, and he's got to just, what's he going to have to do? He's going to have to take Jesus at his word and act on what he believes is true, okay? He's going to have to leave hoping, believing, trusting that Jesus has the ability to heal his son from many miles away, all right? takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? All right? So, it says, go, your son will live. The man believed, there's that word, the word that Jesus, had spoke, Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. He's on his way back, and they meet him and say, hey, by the way, your son's getting better. Yeah. So he asked them the hour at when he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, John uses Roman time when he writes his scripture, so which Roman time basically started at 6 in the morning. So the sixth hour would have been 12. The seventh hour would have been what? 1 o'clock. Okay? 1 o'clock. And so at the seventh hour, he, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, 
your son will live. And he himself believed and his whole household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Jerusalem, excuse me, from Judea to Galilee. The second sign which Jesus had done. The first sign was the turning of the water into wine there at Cana in Galilee. Now, what is the nature of this story? John is trying to teach us about belief. What is the nature of belief? What does it mean to believe? Is it like what you read in the life of Pi by Jan Martel and whoever else? This, uh, is that what it is? Simply to uh, make decisions based upon evidence out there? What does it mean to believe? What is the nature of belief? We're going to find out in this text. Before we look directly at this text, I want you to think about this, step back from it, and, and sort of take a bird's eye view of the whole Gospel of John. Because you need to understand that the word believe is a very important word in John. The word believe or some form of it is used almost 100 times in this book. 98 times John uses the word believe. In fact, in the 20th chapter and the 31st verse of this book, the very near the end of the book, he says, oh, I was going to do this by memory, and now we'll see if I can remember it. There are many other signs which Jesus did, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. What is John saying in that verse? There are a lot of things that Jesus did. We could, have, we could have written many things. But I chose these things because I want you to believe in Jesus. Because I know that if you believe in Jesus, you will have life through him. What's John telling us? He's saying the whole reason I wrote this book was so that you would believe. That's why the word believes all the way through. Think about some famous verses. John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine, he did this, this second sign miracle John did when he was in Cana. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and his disciples believed in him. John chapter 2. John chapter 3, John, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever what? believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And here in this fourth chapter, he says, Unless I do signs, you don't believe. But this man, the nobleman, believed on behalf of his son. All the way through this book, there's this emphasis, emphasis on belief. Well, so let's take a look then at the three things that we want to see about this idea of belief. First of all, we want to see the evidence, or excuse me, the object of belief. What is the object of belief? This is really important because both groups believed. The Galileans believed in some kind of a way but they didn't believe appropriately. What is the object of belief? According to the Scripture, the object of belief is the Messiah, not the miracle. The object of belief is the Messiah, not the miracle. Jesus says to them, unless you believe, uh, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What's he really saying? What you're believing in is the thing that I'm doing. And this is a theme throughout uh, throughout the, the Gospel of John. We see it here. We see it a little bit later when Jesus feeds 5,000 people in the sixth chapter. You know that story when Jesus heals, feeds 5,000 people? They follow him the next day, and Jesus, you'd think, would be glad they followed him, but he wasn't. We'll see it in a few weeks when we look at it. He says, you guys just came for me because you got the free bread. 
You just came for what I could provide. And they had a terrible conversation. In fact, most of his disciples left him. Most of them, le- most of them left him, except for the 12, basically. And Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You're the only one who has the words of life. Almost like he's saying, I'd kind of like to leave. <laughs> this kind of bothers me, but I don't know where else to go. And sometimes I have to say that's the level of my faith, too. I've had things happen to me that say, oh, Lord, why would you act this way? Why would you do this thing? But you're the one with the eternal life. See, Peter was willing. But anyway, the theme here is that they didn't really, they believed in what they could get from Jesus, not in the person of Jesus. Way too many of us look to Jesus for his deeds, for what we can get from him, but what he wants from us is a love just for him, a belief in him as a person. And then if you remember, at the end of your Bible, in John chapter 20, there's that famous story where Jesus appears into the, this is after he raises from the dead. And uh, on the night, on, on Easter Sunday night, the disciples were all there together except for one guy named Thomas. Jesus shows up among them. He shows them his hands and his feet. They, they believe in him. They see him. The disciples go to Thomas and say, Thomas should have been at church last night. Jesus showed up, right? What? Jesus is dead. Jesus, Tom said, Tom, well, I guess he probably did get called Tom. Didymus, he was a twin, actually. Uh, Tom said, Thomas said, unless I can put my hand in his fingers and in his sides, I will not believe. What happens a week later, John chapter 20 and verse 28 is the text I'm thinking of. Jesus shows up again, and this time Thomas is there, and he calls Thomas. Can you imagine Thomas? Thomas, like if I, like I said, Andrew, come here. You know, it's like, whoa, I wasn't expecting to get called out, right? Don't worry, I won't move anymore. Come here, Thomas. Put your hand, put your, put your finger in my hand, in my hand, in, in my side. Be not believing, unbelieving, but believe. You believe because you have seen, he says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So this idea of being com- belief in the person of Jesus Christ is really important to this story. See, there are, as I said, there are way too many of us who believe, who believe in the deeds that Jesus provides for us, but not the person of Jesus himself. So when Jesus stops meeting our needs, when Jesus stops behaving like we want him to, providing for us the bread we need, answering the prayers, making sense to us, we tend to back away. That's not the kind of belief that, that, Jesus is, that John is writing about. And that's what Jesus was frustrated about from these Galileans. That's why he thought he was not really being honored by them. They were excited about his miracles. They were excited about the hometown boy getting a name down in big-time Jerusalem. They were excited about all that stuff. But were they ready to place their faith and confidence in Jesus himself? See, the object of our belief is Jesus, not what Jesus does for us. You see, the key thing with regard to scriptural belief is not how strongly you believe, but whether your belief is in the right thing. <laughs> you can be full of faith. You can be full of doubt and fears, and you can be all afraid, but if you cling to the right branch and it saves you, the important thing is the strength of the branch, not the strength of the faith, right? Believing in Jesus, the object of our belief. So the first thing that we realize is the object of our belief is the Messiah and not the miracle. The second thing that we see in here is what is the evidence of our belief? What is the evidence of our belief? Well, and what we will see as we look at this, the evidence of belief is in the action, not the ascent. The action, not the ascent. Way too many of us today think that believing is God is merely giving mental assent to an idea. 
I was having a conversation just yesterday, just Saturday, Friday, with a, a gentleman. Found out what we're doing here, and I told him about the church and every, you know, uh, and where we meet and all that sort of thing. And he'd heard about us, and and he said, "I don't know what would you call me? You know, I, I believe in God. I believe in the mystery of the universe. I, I believe in a." You know, that we're not just protoplasm. I mean, there's got to be something more. Uh, but I don't see anything special about Jesus any more than, say, Buddha or Muhammad. And I, what would you call that? <laughs> so I, I think you'd call me, he said, I think you'd call me kind of spiritual without being religious. And well, a lot of people, I said to him, we didn't have much time to talk. I said to him, well, yeah, a lot of people do, you know, think of themselves in that kind of way. But what you need to understand is that Christianity teaches that God is separate from the universe, but came to us in the person of Jesus, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that Jesus was, um, uh, that Jesus came to be with us as God come to the human race, and that Jesus gave his life for us, died for us, and rose from that. That's the essence of Christian belief. So, well, that's just what people say, you know, and it said, well, that was kind of the end of our conversation. I said, yeah, yeah. And I, I just said, yeah, it, it is what people say, and it's a pretty revolutionary idea if it's true. <laughs> you, know, you know, it just really is. Um, the evidence of belief is not in just having ideas. I mean, the vast majority of Americans believe in God. In fact, I would guess that all of you believe in God. But just because you believe in God doesn't mean that you have been willing to act on that belief. Acting on the belief is what proves the belief. If you don't act, you don't believe. Action is the evidence of belief. I don't know if it's really a true story, but I've always thought uh, it, it quite a fascinating. I heard it when I was very young about this one guy who, who, uh, who uh, walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope years ago, years and years ago, you know, when it was basically legal to do that, although I know it's been done more recently as well. A great crowd watches him walk across on the tightrope, and they're all cheering, and they all think it's magnificent, and then he shows up on the side, and he, he talks to the whole crowd, and talks about how, you know, what he did and all that sort of thing, and he asks the crowd, how many of you think I could carry a person across here on a wheelbarrow, you know? Everybody says, yeah, you know, I'm sure you could do it. All right, who's my volunteer, you know? Well, <laughs> that's the problem. Many of us are fans. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, God. But are you willing to put your life on the line to give yourself to him, to act on his word? That's what belief is. And I, it keeps me up at night, to be honest with you, sometimes. When I, think, when I think of the number of people I've preached to over the course of 25 years who I fear will get to the last day and will say, you know, I, I thought I believed, but I never did. I just never really did. I never acted on that belief. Oh, I worry. I can't make that decision for you, but I can say to you, will you act on that belief? You have to make that response to Jesus to get in the wheelbarrow. Just take that step. Why do I, where does this come from? It comes from this, uh, this story of, of Jesus and this man. We have these Galileans who were, were fine with Jesus as long as they did stuff for them, Right? But this man makes this long journey on behalf of his son, and Jesus gives to him this day, unless you 
and it means you all, unless you all, not just to the men, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He says, sir, come down before my child. He's desperate. Come down. He didn't say, say the word. He said, come down. And Jesus said, go. Your son will live. The man believed the word and went on his way. He believed and he took action. You know what's interesting is he could have gotten, he could, he could have rushed home and gotten home that night. He could have. But the Bible indicates that he didn't. Because he's going down the next, the, the, uh, you know, it must be at 1 o'clock, right? He's going down and he meets the, his people who have come this way to greet him. And what do they say to him? Your son's getting better. He says, well, when did it happen? They say, yesterday at about noon, about 1 o'clock. The man was so confident or else he thought it didn't really matter, either Jesus was true to his word or he wasn't, that he stayed in the hotel overnight or whatever he did, and he's making his way the next Why? He acted on his belief. We've got to act on our belief. It's not just Jesus didn't come just to give us a new idea about the universe, a new idea about God. He came to give us life for us. The object of our, the evidence of our belief is in the action, not in the ascent. You see, the belief that Jesus expects is not the belief that says, I think certain, certain things are true. It's the belief that says, I'm willing to commit my life based upon the evidence of those beliefs. The belief Jesus expects out of us is not the crowd on the side saying, yay, God, yay, but rather people who are willing to get in the wheelbarrow and say, I trust you, have to respond to him. Okay, the last thing is the validation of belief, the validation of, uh, of belief. What is the validation of belief? Well, this man, the validation of his belief was what? He got home and he found out his son was well. He found out that Jesus had been true to his word. He found a living son, not a dead son. What's the validation of Christian belief? I'll tell you what it is. We serve a living Savior, not a dead teacher. You cannot talk to a Muslim. They do not believe that Muhammad raised from the dead. Talk to a Buddha. They don't believe that G Buddha raised from the dead. Talk to a Christian, and if they don't believe that Jesus raised from the dead, they're not a Christian. That's the essence of Christianity. Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and lives today, and will return someday to remake this earth. That's the validation of our belief, because Jesus is alive. The thing I'm saying to you, and that I would have liked to have said to this man, had I had a little bit more time, would say to him, you know, I'd love for you to explore the person of Jesus. I'd love for you to really take a look at him, think about him, study him, and, and come to see whether you can believe that this Jesus was not just dead, not just a great teacher who died and left followers who carried on his work, but a teacher who died and was raised from the dead. The reason why you can have confidence in your belief is because you serve a risen Savior. You say, well, but I haven't seen him. Commit your life to him, and you will know he's alive. You will know. There will be no doubt in your mind. You will know that when you talk to him, you're talking to a living. You can't know until you commit, right? You can't. Maybe you're like Thomas. Unless I see, I will not believe. Thomas, Jesus says, <laughs> you know, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 
You can't know the joy of married life until you're willing to make a commitment to being married. You can't know the joy of having a child until you've had a child. Forgive me for saying this because the people I know that a lot of people say, well, my dog is my child. I, I want to affirm how valuable animals are. I've tried to make that point. How wonderful, but I doubt whether any parent can say that. There's something you, you can't know. You can't know on the other side of it. But when you get on the other side of it, you will know. The Apostle Paul says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The Apostle Paul wrote, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made like him in his death so that I may be like him in his resurrection. Whatever was gained for me, those things I considered lost for the sake of knowing Christ, for whose sake I have lost all things and consider them rubbish that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that is from God and is by faith. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and then 7 and then 8. I kind of mixed them up, but there you go. I'm just saying to you, the witness of believers throughout history, the witness of the church from the beginning is that Jesus is alive. So, our belief, what is the object of our belief? It is in the Messiah, not in the miracle. What is the evidence of our belief? It is in the action, not in the ascent. What is, in the, what is the validation of our belief? It is in the living Jesus, not wishful thinking. You can stay in the wishful thinking, well, I think, well, I think, well, I think. I don't care what you think. <laughs> what are you willing to commit your life to? I commit my life to Jesus. I can get a little bit emotional here today, I guess. I, I hope you don't mind. <laughs> Just, you know, this is why this is an important. This is the second sign which Jesus did. And if it's true, it should change your whole world. And then you, as you follow Jesus, you should become a living witness to the reality of Jesus' presence in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what Jan Martel believes or what the life of Pi wants to say, but, you know, there's a difference between various points of view, and the difference makes a difference. I want to invite you to place your faith and trust and confidence in Jesus. You will never regret that. Let's pray as we close. Father, I just really thank you that you are so patient with us. When you inspired John to write this gospel, you, t you told him, hey, tell them how important it is to believe in Jesus to place their confidence and trust in Him, to jump in the wheelbarrow. Because if they do that, they will have life. Life. I pray that everyone here today, whether young or old, whether new to Jesus or, far, or, or walked with Jesus many years, would say, I believe I will take action on my belief. 
and then I will find the validation after the action. There are, are perhaps some today who would say, you know, oh, I'm kind of been on the side cheering, but life is in the commitment. I want to make a commitment. I want to trust in Jesus. I pray that they will do that even as we close our time together. In Jesus' name I pray.